The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. This hour of the Costa Report is brought to you by IBM. Big data at the speed of business. Welcome to the Costa Report. I'm Rebecca Costa, and thank you for joining me for another two hours of Straight Talk Radio. I want to welcome members of our armed forces who are joining us from remote locations around the world. Thank you for your service and for being with us again. My guest today is former governor of Indiana and United States Senator Mr. Evan Bayh. He'll be joining us in just a moment to weigh in on quite a number of issues from the partisan standoff on health care and the debt ceiling to how to create more jobs in America and the dangers associated with arming rogue factions in the Middle East. Uh, We have an interesting program ahead, and um, it's with one of the few Democrats who has dared to reach across the aisle over several controversial occasions, including being the only Democrat to vote against raising the debt ceiling in 2009. But before he joins us, as is my custom each week, let me take a moment to tell you a little about his background. Evan Bayh was born in Shirkyville, Indiana. In 1962, his father, Birch Bayh, was elected to the U.S. Senate and moved the family to Washington, D.C., where Evan spent the remainder of his childhood. Evan Bayh received his undergraduate degree in economics and public policy from Indiana University and his law degree from the University of Virginia. In 1986, he was elected Indiana's Secretary of State and two years later became governor. He was the youngest governor in the United States at that time, and he was also re-elected to a second term owing to sticking to his promise not to raise taxes while also creating the largest budgetary surplus in the state's history. He was also known for raising academic standards and being strong on law enforcement. Bayh was elected to the U.S. Senate in 1998 and re-elected in 2004. While in the Senate, he served on the Banking, Housing, and Urban Affairs Committee, International Trade and Finance, Armed Services Select Committee on Intelligence, Special Committee on Aging, and Small Business Committee, to name a few. Bayh did not choose to run for re-election in 2010, and we'll hear more about that later in today's program. Following his career in the Senate, by joined McGuire Woods, and he's also an advisor to Apollo Management in New York. It's my pleasure to welcome to the Costa Report, one of the few centrists our country sought fit to send to Washington in recent years, Mr. Evan Bai. Thank you for joining us, Mr. Bai. Rebecca, thank you. It's a pleasure to be with you, and I, I really appreciate uh, your kind words, but it, it started to sound a bit like a eulogy there. You were so nice. <laughs> oh, let's not go there. We we, we need you more than ever. <laughs> well, thank you. Uh, if it's okay with you, I, I'd like to jump right into the latest partisan shenanigans that we've all been treated to this past month and which we're likely to see repeated come the end of January again. So let me ask you whether you might be feeling that you uh, maybe should have run for another term after all. Well, I do. Uh, I'm an idealist at heart, Rebecca, and I devoted uh, the vast majority of my life to trying to help my state and country. And so I miss having the opportunity to try and do that every day. Uh, I'm wondering if I was still there, whether my, my voice would make a difference or not. As you pointed out in your introduction, uh, it's a tough time to be a moderate in either party. But uh, yeah, uh, with uh, you know shutting down the government and on the verge of default and all that sort of thing, uh, the uh, patriotic American in me wishes I could do something about that because our country deserves better. Increasingly, we see moderate Republicans uh, throwing up their hands and walking away and uh, conservative Democrats, uh, the same thing. We seem to, these people that were able to broker uh, compromise 
seem to have left our nation's capital. And I'm very concerned about that. And I know a lot of listeners are today as well. Um, Can you talk about that for a moment? Well, unfortunately, it's true. Uh, My good friend and colleague, Olympia Snow, uh, chose to not run for election uh, last year. And uh, there are other moderates from both parties. Olympia happens to be a Republican. Uh, who are making a similar decisions because it's become so partisan and so ideologically polarized, uh, and the pressure is just uh, unrelenting to just kind of go along with whatever the party line happens to be. I think there are a number of reasons for this we can uh, talk about, but if I had to mention one, uh, you know, I think about my father's experience, and uh, he was elected to the Senate in 1962. 1968, he's running for his first re-election. The Republican leader, a man named Everett Dirksen from Illinois, uh, came up to him on the floor of the Senate and put his arm around his shoulder and asked, my father was a Democrat, asked what he could do to help with his reelection. Mm-hmm. Uh, they, they were Americans first and friends first and colleagues first. Did they agree on everything? No, of course not. But they were able to sit down and try and reconcile their differences, just like your listeners uh, do in their, their businesses, their uh, civic groups, their families, each and every day. I think one of the reasons... It's so hard in Washington today. If I had to pick just one, mm-hmm. the generation that came through the Great Depression, the Second World War, the struggle against global communism, that may span you know, a generation and a half, maybe two, uh, they knew firsthand that there were greater threats to the well-being of our nation than just members of a, another political party or people who happened to have a different ideological view. There were real threats to the existence of America. And so you know, they knew... That gave them a common bond forged in, uh, you know, uh, the fires of external threats to the country. And we had our generation had 9/11, a terrible tragedy, but thank God it was. It's been a one-off event. We have not seen a recurrence of uh, something uh, nearly that bad. And so it, you know, pretty quickly went back to business as usual. So I think that's part of it. The gerrymander in the House is part of it. The role of big money uh, that reinforce that enforces uh, party orthodoxy is part of it. Uh, so. Uh, yes, it's a real phenomenon of moderates being marginalized uh, or choosing to do something they view as more productive with their lives. But but even going back a few years in 2009, uh, uh, you were the only Democrat to vote against raising the debt ceiling, and that couldn't have felt too comfortable. No, and uh, I was not alone in that regard. Uh, I'm, I'm sorry, that, that, that example is not uh, unique. There were many other times when I was... Uh, what they refer to as the problem child. <laughs> I was always independent. And I thought, you know, look, I'd been governor of my state, as you mentioned, for eight years. I'd had to cut spending and balance budgets and, you know, exert real leadership. And my vote was not because I wanted to default on the debt. Of course, I didn't want to do that. But my vote was, look, as we raise the debt ceiling, we need to try and chart a better path toward getting our fiscal house in order over a longer period of time. And, you know, that's, you know, how I felt about it. And that's how I feel about it today. So, we seem to have a confusion about what's a short-term mitigation and what's a solution. Uh, I have this discussion quite a bit with people and say, you know, raising the debt ceiling is a mitigation. It's what you do in the time you buy that determines whether there's going to be a very painful correction or not. If you do nothing while you're mitigating, uh, the correction ultimately will uh, will be very painful. Well, that's right. It's like a physician who only treats your symptoms rather than tries to cure the disease. There you go. So, uh, it, it was not uncommon for me to get some grief from my own party because uh, I tried to do what I felt was right, even if it always it didn't uh, you know, go along with the rest of the group. And that was particularly true on you know, fiscal and economic issues. But um, uh, it's not, not comfortable, but, you know, uh, you're... You're there to do what you think is right, not always win a popularity contest. Yeah, but on the other hand, as a governor, you stuck to your promises. You did not raise taxes, and you created the largest surplus in Indiana state history. So you would think people might be listening to you, maybe? (laughs) Well, and you know, I used to tell members of my own party and when I was governor, and and, uh, I had more say over things when I was the chief executive, But even in Congress, I'd say, look, if you care about Social Security, if you care about Medicare and Medicaid, which we all should, you need to try and put them on a long-term sustainable path. And um, so it was not uncommon for me to uh, cast fiscally more moderate to conservative votes because I felt that, and my message to my more liberal friends was, 
if you believe in a, a, a positive, a, an active role for government, if you want the resources to uh, do more for education or health care or protect the environment or whatever it might happen to be, uh, you got to do two things. First, you need to grow the economy because that's what generates the resources. And secondly, you need to have fiscal stability. If you're going broke, the people who get hurt first are the ones who are relying on the government for help. Well, you're absolutely right about that, and we're seeing a lot of that uh, come to fruition. We have to take our first commercial break, but when we come back, we're going to learn more from Mr. Bai about how get how to get back on the road to fiscal health. You're listening to the Costa Report. Did you know that every day we create 2.5 quintillion bytes of data and that 90% of the data in the world today has been created in the last two years alone? This data comes from everywhere and it affects everyone. This data is big data. Big data is all data, and it's more than simply a matter of size. Big data represents an opportunity to uncover new insights, make your business more agile, and answer questions that were previously beyond your reach. IBM's big data platform uses sophisticated technologies and patented advanced analytics designed to complement your existing information infrastructure. The IBM Big Data platform allows you to get started quickly today and expand to address more complex problems tomorrow. It doesn't matter where you start, it matters that you start. Find out how IBM can help you turn big data into a competitive advantage by visiting ibm.com slash big data today. I'm here today with Scott Caraccioli of Caraccioli Cellars. Now, there's a number of ways you can taste wines at the tasting room. Talk to us a little bit about that. Yeah, we currently have nine different wines on our tasting menu, and we really want it to be an experience where you get to taste the wine that you want to taste. So if you want to taste Pinot, you can really focus your flight around that. If you wanted to focus on the bubbles, we have three different sparklings that will allow you to build your flight that way. Or if you came in and you just wanted to taste one wine, we would uh, have it set up for you to be able to do that as well. Now, what's a flight? A flight is basically a combination of small tastes of different wines. If you wanted to taste all of our different Chardonnays, you could taste the 2007 Chardonnay, the 2008, and the 2009, and we would line you up with an individual taste of each of them. Thank you for being with us again, Scott. Thank you, Rebecca. My grandfather built Foster Farms by producing the highest quality and safest chicken around. I'm Ron Foster, and 74 years later, all of us at Foster Farms aim to uphold that tradition. We sincerely regret any concern the recent reports of salmonella may have caused you, and want you to know what we are doing about it. Foster Farms has added 23 new controls to enhance our food safety process, every step of the way from our farms to your store. Each one has proven effective, and together, they're helping reduce salmonella more than ever. In fact, testing has shown that these new procedures are making Foster Farms some of the safest chicken available today. Food safety is important to all of us, and we are committed to leading the industry. I invite you to learn more about our new food safety programs on our website, www.fosterfarms.com. I'm Ron Foster. Thanks for listening. Given what's going on in the world, it's more important than ever to save money. Hello, I'm Scott Bedell from Bedell Nelson Harbor Insurance, your allied agent in Santa Cruz. Bedell Nelson can save you money by packaging your home and auto coverage with Allied. We can even help you save on your vacation rental with Foremost Insurance Group. Give us a call at 426-3700 and ask for a free, no-obligation quote. We are Bedell Nelson Harbor Insurance, and we can save you money because Allied and Nationwide are on your side. 426-3700. Eat, Drink, Explore Radio is your lifestyle information source. Our focus includes food, wine, craft beer, travel and tourism trends, emphasizing healthy, local, and sustainable options. We've got you covered from 8 to 10 each and every Sunday morning, live, right here on KSCO AM 1080. Eat, Drink, Explore Radio, your source for the lifestyle you love. 
Welcome back to the Costa Report. I'm Rebecca Costa, and my guest today is former governor and senator from Indiana, Mr. Evan Bayh. And before the break, we were talking about the fact that there's really only only one way to cure the debt ceiling, and that's to get the economy growing again. So let's pick it up there. You've been a strong advocate for small business, and recently we had a chance to speak to Carly Fiorina, the former head of Hewlett-Packard, who brought up the fact that the number of new small businesses being started is at its low point in 40 years. And compounding this, the number of small businesses that are failing is also at its highest point in 40 years. Can you comment on that? Uh, Well, Carly has spent more time in the private sector than I um, have, so I would uh, be interested in her thoughts. But I'd say a couple of things. First, um, coming out of the the Great Recession and the financial crisis that we had, uh, a lot of the financial institutions really cranked back on their lending standards. So it's possible that some uh, small entrepreneurs without a long track record of successfully repaying loans and that sort of thing are having trouble getting access to capital. That's number one. Uh, Number two, uh, the economy's been sluggish. And anytime the economy is sluggish and consumers are paying, you know, down their credit card bills and their other debts and that sort of thing, demand's going to be weak. That's a a hard time to start a business. So... um, that's number two. Number three, uh, you know, the regulatory burden these days. I mean, you know, we, some regulations are important to having clean water, and we don't want to have kids working in coal mines and that kind of thing. Uh, but the, the regulatory burden is uh, greater than ever before. And, um, you know, finally, I just say with all the uncertainty, we started off talking about some of the craziness in Washington. When you look at uh, just uh, all the different uh, moving parts out there today, there's a real lack of confidence. Uh, about the future. And so anytime people are a little worried and don't have that confidence, they're going to take a wait-and-see attitude. And that goes for current businesses. They're going to wait a little bit before they hire more people. They're going to wait a little bit more before they make a new investment in a new plant or equipment. And maybe these entrepreneurs are going to wait a little bit before they go out and try and start a new business because they're just worried. And so that's another reason for Congress to get its act together. There's enough uncertainty in the world as it is without our elected officials actually creating more of it uh, needlessly. Which brings me to a point that you and John Huntsman have been advocating a Jobs First program, which seems to offer a way of avoiding another ride off the fiscal cliff early next year. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yes, what that would do, Rebecca, is based, and John is a Republican, former governor of Utah, Good guy. Matter of fact, I was... Can I just say that that's one of the things I love best about this program is that both of you have stepped up and sort of co-authored it and co-advocated it? Well, when I was in the Senate, I looked for a Republican co-sponsor in just about everything I, I introduced because I thought, uh, it was A, it was the right way to do it, and B, it increased the chances of it actually getting done, and C, because things swing back and forth between the two parties, if you're going to have staying power... Uh, you better do it that way. But then again, I'm old school. I believe in trying to work things out rather than just constantly fighting. We could use a little old school right now. (laughs) Well, that's kind of you to... (laughs) Nothing wrong with old school. There's a a saying I've always tried to remember. It's an old civil rights saying that uh, we may have arrived on these shores in different ships, but we're all in the same boat now. Mm, There you go. Try to keep that perspective. So in any event, what, what the... The Jobs First initiative that uh, uh, former Governor Huntsman and I announced through No Labels Together would do would basically be just say, time out. Okay, enough of the food fights, enough of the ideological warfare. This is harming the country. What we really need is a period of certainty here where businesses can plan and invest. They can hire the small businesses you referred to. The entrepreneurs can decide to start a company with some window of certainty and some predictability without all this nonsense going on. So what it basically would say is until the unemployment rate got down to 6.5% uh, from where it currently is, and that's the same level that the Federal Reserve has identified as the level they want to see, uh, and that at that point they're going to start uh, cutting back on some of the extraordinary measures they've taken to try and keep interest rates low and you know, prop up the economy. And we think that would take probably until the end of next calendar year, so let's say 14, 15 months from now, basically just say enough already. Uh, no tax increases, no defaulting on the debt. Uh, let's keep the government open, and let's just let uh, the people have a ceasefire, a timeout, and let the economy get ahead of steam under it. That's the best thing we could do, and that's what the proposal would call for. 
So I want to be sure I understand this. You want to freeze everything. You want to freeze the debt ceiling, freeze spending, freeze everything going on relative to these uh, well, uh, partisan debates and say, listen, until unemployment gets down to 6.5%, we don't ha- talk about that anymore. That's not on the table anymore. Well, it gets a, a little more complicated than that. But basically, you know, the Democrats, many of them would like to raise taxes. We'd say, nope, for 14 months, we're just not going to do that. Uh, the Democrats and a few Republicans would like to lift spending in the sequester, uh, which are the across-the-board spending cuts that have been put into effect, and there are more on the way for January. We'd say, yep, spending, uh, the spending levels stay flat. We're not going to raise the spending anymore. So that, that would aggravate some Democrats. On the other hand, as you know, even though the deficit is way down, and it was just announced yesterday, it was uh, lower than expected, we're still running a deficit, which means that uh, at least for the time being, you have to raise the debt ceiling from time to time. Republicans won't like that, but we can't default the country. So each side uh, doesn't get some of what they want, but what the country gets is a breathing space, a timeout from the partisan warfare for business to get going, for jobs to be created, and then we can sit down hopefully and work these things out, or at least if we're going to return to partisan warfare, uh, the country will be in better shape and the economy will have a bigger head of steam uh, in it. That's a tough sell, though. I mean, to go back, go to people and say, realistically, in order to stabilize, we've got to continue overspending for 15 more months. Uh, are people ready for that message? Uh, well, the other way to look at it is, realistically, uh, you're not with this uh, Senate and the president. You're it, it, They're basically a standoff. The Democrats right now aren't going to agree to entitlement reform. I think that they should. You've got to come to grips with the, those sorts of things in the, in the long term. The Republicans aren't going to agree to any uh, other steps other than the ones that were implemented in January, which were significant, uh, to raise any additional taxes. So there's just a standoff. So uh, what you have is either a constant crisis and running the risk of shutting down the government again or defaulting on the debt, which is not healthy for the economy, or you just say enough already. Uh, we're going to keep the spending cuts in place that were there. We're not going to raise taxes. Uh, Those are both viewed as uh, things that the Democrats won't like. Uh, But um, you're right, Rebecca, Rebecca, what we really need is a long-term deal to get the debt in order, particularly with regard to to entitlements in those out years. Because if you make fairly modest changes today, compounded over 20, 30, 40 years, it really can lead to substantial savings without significantly impairing the benefits that particularly people who are in need will receive. Absent that, yeah, you know, we're going to have a breather here where the debt is, you know, on a downward trajectory, you know, this year and next year. It then starts turning up again. And if nothing is done, we'll reach an unsustainable level. And it's really a lot better if we act now to get it under control rather than just basically punt and have to deal with it when a crisis occurs or, which would really be bad, basically ask our children to make the hard decisions because their parents weren't willing to. Well, as you point out, unfortunately, we seem to get it together after a 9-11 or there's news a meteor is going to hit the earth in the case of Hollywood, right? All of a sudden, uh, we we all join uh, hands and arms and uh, we deal with the problem. So uh, I hope I hope that we've learned something from 9-11 about that, uh, particularly our leaders. Um, we have to take another scheduled break, but we'll be right back with Evan Bai. You're listening to The Costa Report. Hi, I'm Amy Tobin, cookbook author and culinary expert. Are you looking for ideas to create a more balanced meal plan? As one of the world's largest providers of fresh fruits and vegetables, Dole makes it easy to eat the right foods. From a wide variety of salad blends and all-natural salad kits to fresh-cut vegetables and a rainbow of your favorite fresh fruit, Dole delivers good nutrition naturally. But Dole goes beyond just offering healthy fruits and vegetables. Dole has their own nutrition institute that gives you the knowledge and tools you need to make smart choices about your nutrition and health. Visit www.dole.com for more information about the Dole Nutrition Institute. Be sure to sign up for their e-newsletter to receive delicious recipes, tips, and articles to help you make your meals the best they can be. Visit www.dole.com for more. 
If your family car runs out of gas or oil or water, its engine will fail. If your body runs out of essential mineral or vitamin or amino acid nutrients, it will grow weak and you will be left with aches, pains, and diseases. Some say you can get all 90 of the essential nutrients you need from foods you eat. Maybe, but if you eat foods from farmed out soils or foods that have had the life processed out of them, you will deprive your body of some essential nutrients. You can can get all 90 of the essential nutrients your body needs for less than a daily latte with a 90 for life healthy start pack. It's easy, it's delicious, and they are essential. Ace is the place to pick up Dr. Joel Wallach's 90 for Life Healthy Start Pack. Swing by Ace Hardware in Freedom, Gilroy, Marina, Salinas, and Watsonville and ask for the 90 for Life. You'll get all the nutrients your body needs to grow strong and stay healthy for less than a daily latte. Remember, Ace is your place for the 90 for Life. In this world where greed and dishonesty, powered by lightning speed fast advances in technology, have pretty much taken over in politics and business, KSCO remains proud to serve our community as an independent, locally owned and operated radio station with skill and integrity. There are two main reasons that KSCO survives and thrives as an independent voice for everyone in the community when other stations around the country are increasingly simply mouthpieces for big corporate media. Reason number one, KSCO advertising works and is very reasonably priced. Ask any of our advertisers. Reason number two, KSCO actively promotes 90 for life. The concept that if you give your body all 90 of the raw materials it needs to get and stay healthy, you will get and stay healthy. And it follows that you will probably live a longer life as well. You can join our 90 for life crusade by buying premium quality quality products such as Beyond Tangy Tangerine and the Healthy Start Pack either online at kscohealth.com by coming to KSCO Studios at 2300 Portola Drive and soon at various KSCO advertiser locations. We want our KSCO audience, already the most intelligent, to be the healthiest it can be as well. Get on 90 for Life by Longevity. It will help KSCO and help you. When it comes to your business, we are all business. Hi, I'm Michelle Bassey with Wells Fargo Bank. Wells Fargo has teamed up with the Santa Cruz chapter of SCORE to bring you small business counseling sessions on KSCO Tuesday mornings at 745 and evenings at 515. Tune in and learn how successful business people walk their talk. When it comes to your business, our Wells Fargo-powered SCORE counseling sessions on KSCO really are all business. Tune in and learn. Welcome back to the Costa Report. I'm Rebecca Costa, and if you're just joining us, my guest today is former governor and senator from Indiana, Evan Bayh. And before we went to break, you were pointing out that the Jobs First program, which you and Governor Huntsman uh, advocate, would uh, keep spending and debt at current rates until such time as unemployment could be brought to 6.5%. And the idea behind the program is to offer greater certainty in the marketplace and and also to give us time to implement a long-term solution to our financial challenges. Is that right? That's right, Rebecca. I can't tell you how often I hear business people say, look, we're just going to hold off on making significant decisions, whether it's expanding our business by making an investment or hiring somebody because they don't know what the conditions are going to be three months, six months from now, or the I mean, nobody can foresee the future uh, with perfection, but the, the uncertainty today is much higher than ever before. So they're just holding off. And there's no doubt in my mind that all this uncertainty about tax rates, regulations, uh, you know, government shutdown or default, you know, just all that stuff is really holding back the economy. And the best thing we can do for the country is to get more people working, get businesses expanding, and then sit down and try and resolve these problems. I couldn't agree with you more. Um, Let's uh, switch subjects here for just a moment. And I I wanted to take uh, at least a little bit of the program to clear up some confusion that I think is out there over this medical device tax issue. Because uh, I think that most Americans are trying to figure out uh, all the mumbo jumbo in the media about the Affordable Health Care Act. 
and uh, and it appears that the medical devices were subject to a special tax under the Affordable Health Care Act, and that that tax was offsetting part of the Health Care Act itself. Uh, but the argument against the tax was that these companies who are making the devices, like pacemakers, uh, would begin shipping and manufacturing overseas if they have to pay these additional taxes. Is that correct? Well, there are a couple of things. First, um, the tax is on sales, not profits. Yes. So for a lot of these small and medium-sized device companies, who are some of the small businesses you referred to before, who are among the most innovative, rapidly growing firms, they may be marginally profitable. Uh, They may just have their head above the water, and then they get slapped with a tax on sales, not profits, and that could put them out of business. So here we go again, exacerbating the business environment and the climate and the challenges that these small businesses face. Well, that's right. And there just seems something wrong about, you know, taxing profits. You know, that's one thing we can talk about that. Taxing you, whether you make a profit or not, that's something else. And so the the tax was written that way. Uh, The second thing is uh, you mentioned uh, pacemakers. or Let's think about artificial hips or artificial knees or those sorts of things. most of the people, not all, but most of the people, majority of the people who use those kind of medical devices are going to be, you know, somewhat older. And many of them already are on Medicare or Medicaid, so they're already covered. And one of the theories uh, on the Affordable Care Act was uh, it requires the drug companies to pay more because they said we're going to cover a lot more people and your profits may be a little bit lower, but you'll have a lot more consumers. So you'll, what you lose on your margin, your profit margin, you'll make up in volume. Right. Let me just clarify that. The more people that are insured, the idea was that the market for these these devices would get larger because there would be more insured to cover paying for those devices. Correct. And that's the agreement that basically the pharmaceutical companies made, the hospitals made, the health insurance industry made was, look, we'll get 30 to 40 million more customers. And so we'll agree to make a little less on each one of those customers, but we'll have much more volume. So our under you know our overall bottom line will be the same. That was the mm-hmm. deal mm-hmm. for the uh, for the medical device companies. Not so much because most of their customers are are already covered. So they are unlikely to see the surge of new customers uh, that uh, many of those other providers I just mentioned uh, are likely to see. And therefore, a lot of this is just going to come out of their bottom line, which means less R and D. So you're going to have less healthcare innovation, uh, less employment. And some of it's going to be going overseas, as you mentioned, because of this. Well, we're practically forcing them to go overseas. company in my state, uh, Cook Industry, great company, Cook Medical, uh, they had plans to open one new facility per year in the United States, and they put that on hold. Uh, several other companies have announced that they're not going to expand because they can't afford it. They're all looking at their R&D budgets to cut. It's going to have an effect on the long-term quality of care, And this is a vibrant part of the economy, Rebecca. We actually have a balance of trade surplus on Mm -hmm. medical devices. We lead the world in this industry, and now we're, you know, tying at least one hand, maybe two behind their back. Yeah, well, that's not sounding too good. But but how does Obamacare make up the loss of revenue if they, you know, uh, apparently they're going to waive this tax, right? That seems to be part of the compromise that's been reached. Well, it, it, it was a part of the compromise, but it got uh, left on the cutting room floor at the uh, 11th hour, so it was not included. So the tax is fully in effect right now. These companies are all paying it. So it may be a part of you know, what they work out between now and uh, you know, January when the, you know, there has to be a budget, or February when the debt ceiling has to be addressed again. This is not. absolutely killing me because that's three months away. I don't know if listeners realize that we we just got a stay of execution for three months. Yeah, and that's uh, ridiculous. This is a perfect example, Rebecca. These companies, they don't know whether to invest. They don't know whether to hire. They don't know whether they can because invest. they don't know what's going to happen in three months. No, they have no idea. It looked like the tax was going to be uh, held in abeyance, and there were some ways to pay for that. Uh, but now they're just in limbo. Uh, I, I think that if the government can't give a clear signal of where they're going to be in terms of a tax on medical devices in three, three months from now, uh, you can't expect these companies to be investing in expanding, adding jobs. And I think that we're just, we just happen to be narrowing in on one particular sector, but I think that this is the case across many industries in the United States right now. 
Well, there's no question about it. That's why I mentioned this uncertainty, whether it's tax uncertainty, regulatory uncertainty, consumer demand for their products because consumers are uncertain right now and maybe less willing to spend. Uh, it all adds up to you know, businesses not hiring and investing, and that's not good for the economy. And that's why we said, look, we understand there are philosophical differences and even some deep disagreements about how to address these issues. But right now, uh, our inability to uh, you know, do anything is creating such uncertainty that's holding the economy back. So I, I hope the one thing we can all agree on is that economic growth makes everything a lot better. Absolutely. Now, I don't want to put you on the spot, but based on what you know about one aspect, which is the medical device tax, and certainly this Affordable Health Care Act is uh, is as complex as the U.S. tax code, which is now 75,000 pages long. Um, uh, is this uh, a program that you support, or do you feel that it's it's got maybe it's too complicated and it's got some real issues that maybe we should step back and take a closer look at these uh, issues uh, and uh, and maybe you know uh, set them aside for a moment, maybe not include them. Well, it is way too complicated, and I do think the uh, device tax should be repealed because it just doesn't make sense to tax uh, sales, not profits. And this industry, the dynamic, as I mentioned, is just not going to lead to the dramatic increase in customers the way it is for those other industries. Well, and profits are already taxed. Why would we have an additional tax on profits? Uh, well, this is this on sales, regardless of the, the a company can be losing money and they got to pay this tax. So. Uh, it kind of adds insult to injury if you're barely profitable or you're losing money. Uh, I do see some of my former colleagues have proposed uh, putting off penalties for uh, the individual mandate. I think that probably makes some sense while this whole thing is being sorted out, the web page mm-hmm. and everything else. And right. I think, you know, look, I, I just think there are going to be a lot of moving parts here, and we got to look to correct the problems where they exist and not uh, treat the law like it's wholly writ and can't be improved or reformed or modified where – uh, that's the sensible thing to do. Yeah, well, that's one of the problems I have with a lot of these new laws and initiatives. It's everything in the kitchen sink is in there. And uh, you know, if we could streamline them, break them down into working parts, I think that uh, one of the great um, great ways to find compromise is find the things you can agree on and at least let those get through the gate. You know, and then yeah. then just narrow in and debate the ones that you can't seem to find common ground on. And I think those would would really amount to very few things. Uh, but we don't seem to have that common sense there in, anymore. And, uh, and and I think it's because we've lost that moderate center. Now, we have to take our last break, but stay right where you are. We'll be right back with Evan Bai. You're listening to the Costa Report. If you listen to the news today, you might come away with the impression that our biggest challenges are political and economic. But if this were true, then countries which have different political and economic systems would be facing different problems. But they aren't. Every government and every nation is struggling with job creation, debt, immigration, climate change, terrorism, health care, energy, and wild swings in financial markets. So something else must be going on. That's why I'm inviting you to get a copy of The Watchman's Rattle, a book which shows how the Roman, Mayan, and Khmer empires once faced similar challenges and what we can do to avoid their fate. Visit RebeccaCosta.com today and get a copy of The Watchman's Rattle, because once you do, you'll never look at the world the same way. Fifty years ago, Dr. Martin Luther King delivered his famous I Have a Dream speech. But something you may not know is that Dr. King was represented by the world's foremost speaking agency, the American Program Bureau. The American Program Bureau has a courageous history of representing luminaries, entertainers, and motivators from all backgrounds. From Ronald Reagan, Richard Branson, and Mikhail Gorbachev, to John Stewart, Michael Douglas, and Desmond Tutu. From A-list celebrities to best-selling authors, cutting-edge business leaders, and the greatest minds in academia, the American Program Bureau has speakers to fit every venue and every budget. When corporations, conferences, schools, and community organizations need an expert speaker, they turn to the American Program Bureau to 
help them craft an event that will be remembered long afterwards. To inquire about a speaker for your next engagement, contact the American Program Bureau at 800-225-4575 or visit our website at apbspeakers.com. The American Program Bureau, making history one speech at a time. This is Sylvia Panetta of the Panetta Institute announcing the 2013 Jefferson Lincoln Awards. Special honorees CBS News Bob Schieffer, Democratic Senator Barbara Mikulski, and Republican Senator Saxby Chambliss will join us Saturday, November 9th. We honor these individuals who are focused on bipartisan politics and unbiased journalism on challenges with the economy, national security, and political divisiveness in Washington. Call 582-4200 for more information. Hi, this is John from Central Coast Diamond Fusion and Window Cleaning. For nearly a decade, we've been keeping glass and other surfaces looking great, easier to clean, and resistant to damage. Central Coast Diamond Fusion coatings protect shower doors from staining, reduces cleaning time, eliminates the need to use harmful cleaning chemicals, and leaves a diamond-like finish. Our coatings also keep bathroom tiles, kitchen granite countertops, sinks, and toilets looking new and easy to clean. Central Coast Diamond Fusion can also restore most water-damaged shower glass and windows at a fraction of the cost of replacing them which our own technicians have done at Stanford University, the California Academy of Science in San Francisco, and Nike's World Campus. Central Coast Diamond Fusion and Window Cleaning, 831-475-6210 or visit www.diamondfusion.com for more information. Central Coast Diamond Fusion and Window Cleaning, 831-475-6210. No job, too small, free estimates are available. Tune in to the Sentinel Radio Program Saturday morning at 8 a.m. right here on AM 1080 KSCO. Brought to you by First Church of Christ Scientist Monterey. Come into our Christian Science Community Reading Room and Bookstore and find comfort from the challenges you're facing. We have the resources that will connect you with your God-given substance. Find help now. Our address is 780 Abrego Street in Monterey. Reach out for this help today. Come in and visit or call 831-372-5076. 372-5076. Welcome back to the Costa Report. I'm Rebecca Costa, and my guest today is Evan Bai. So sticking to the topic of operating on an ad hoc basis and how this produces uncertainty and paralysis, I wanted to shift our focus now to uh, matters overseas. We've got a hotbed of instability in the Middle East at the moment, and uh, in the past you've spoken about the dangers of arming rogue agents, which periodically pop up. Uh, we generally know very little about them. Um, and uh, you've spoken about the subject in the past. And I, I wonder if you had some observations about how we might facilitate stability in nations such as Egypt, for example. Uh, Egypt's a hard case, uh, Rebecca. It's, uh, there are some deep divisions in that uh, society. And the, the real problem there is that you have a surge of young people a lot of lot of millions of young people coming along in an economy that's just uh, you know flat on its back. Uh, no one's going to invest in Egypt today because of the political turmoil there. Tourism is all dried up, and uh, the government uh, deficit is out of control. They subsidize you know fuel uh, purchases for their people and really can't afford to do that. So they're living on borrowed time economically, and these young people coming along don't have jobs, don't have economic futures, and some of them turn to radical Islam, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So uh, the, the, the long-term challenge for the Egyptians is to wean themselves off these fuel subsidies, to improve the quality of their education system, to do things that would make them more economically competitive and relevant in the modern world, but naturally doing some of those things is politically very unpopular and very difficult. So... I think what you're likely to see in Egypt over the next year is uh, they're going to kind of muddle along. Uh, but uh, as you point out, the weapons falling into the wrong hands. There are a lot of weapons awash uh, in Egypt from Libya. When Gaddafi, uh, when the uh, Libyan government collapsed and Gaddafi was expelled, they had huge stockpiles of weapons that went into all sorts of bad places. One of them is Egypt. And so if things keep percolating along, and uh, in Egypt, it's possible that in a year or two, you could see more uh, violence in Egypt, uh, somewhat similar, not exactly similar, but um, uh, somewhat uh, similar to what you see in some other countries like uh, Iraq or maybe not as bad as Syria, but uh, some, some real uh, political instability there. So would you agree with Ron Paul's stance that 
Uh, we need to take a wait-and-see attitude before we step in and, and choose a, a side? Well, I do think where we find elements of al-Qaeda, and uh, which are now unfortunately increasingly present in Syria, they're growing stronger in Iraq. Uh, you know, those are the people who perpetrated the 9-11 attack. And so we do have an interest in trying to do what we can to you know, keep those elements from gaining a safe haven in Egypt, Syria, or someplace else from which they could plan attacks but on But we Al- never know if the people that are opposing al-Qaeda are worse than al-Qaeda. Well, so there's some truth in that. We supported the Taliban way back in the day to try and run the Russians out of uh, Afghanistan. That's a perfect example. I mean, we'll these rogue agents may turn out to be far worse than dealing with, at least with al-Qaeda, we know what we have our hands on. The problem we've got is that in some of these civil wars, and Syria is a civil war, Egypt's not a civil war yet, but they have deep civil uh, differences, mm-hmm. the history of those kinds of things is that the most radical elements uh, are the ones that tend to be willing to f- sacrifice the most and fight the hardest and ultimately win. So there's an attempt in Syria to try and identify the Saudis are doing some of this, some of our al- other allies are attempting, this, the French, the Jordanians, others are attempting to try and get assistance, including arms, to the more moderate uh, parts of the resistance. Mm-hmm. But uh, the longer this goes on, the more radicalized the opposition becomes, and over time, it's the uh, the al-Qaeda types who are likely to prevail. It's happened time and time again throughout history. And so it, it's not in our nature as Americans, Rebecca. We tend to be optimistic and positive, and we tend to think that every solution uh, has a every, – every problem has a solution. Yes. Unfortunately, in some of these cases, there's just not a solution, and these people are going to have to eventually reconcile their differences among themselves. We can't do this for them. Yes. Although, diplomatically, we may pay a price later down the road, depending on who the victor is. Well, it's a, a, a pastime in the Middle East. One thing you can count on for sure is that we'll get blamed. It's a pastime in the Middle East to blame the Americans. <laughs> You know, it's not funny, but you're absolutely right. We've become the the uh, you know everyone's favorite uh, place to park their blame. Yeah, if if we if we uh, if we intervene, then we're you know the bully and the American uh, hegemon. If we don't intervene, then we don't care about them, and we're indifferent to their suffering. You know, they have to, have to try and have it both ways all the time. That that's absolutely right. There there is no there is no good place to be uh, when you're the leader. Uh, and uh, and that makes it very tough. Uh, now, uh, I wanted to talk briefly about Afghanistan. We only have a couple minutes. Uh, we have so much United States money propping up their economy. And even though we've got this great military transition plan, we don't seem to have an economic transition plan. And, and that just seems like that's just setting them up to become another hotbed for terrorism. What What do you say about that? Well, I've been to Afghanistan uh, a number of times, and uh, it's hard to convey to your listeners what it's like. Uh, outside of Kabul, it's like going back uh, a thousand years. Yep. Uh, you know, it's it's almost a, you know, medieval conditions, very primitive. And so there's just not a much of an economy there, and the average per capita income is under $1,000 a year. Mm-hmm. And uh, some of that's based on poppy production, which eventually gets turned into opium or heroin. Uh, and that's obviously not a not a good thing. So uh, in order for them to have any kind of functioning economy, not based on drugs, they need to try and re- reconcile their political differences. Because we can pump all the money we want to in there to new roads and bridges, water treatment facilities, uh, classrooms, hospitals, all that kind of stuff. As long as they're blowing each other up, uh, the economy's not going to move in a very positive direction. And they just have very deep-seated differences about how they view the future of that society, including the role of women and a whole host of other things. But um, it's another perfect example, Rebecca, where we're going to send good money after bad if we try and help them, but they first haven't shown they're willing to help themselves. Yes, I I agree with that. And I think a lot of listeners today will also agree with you. Um, That is all the time we've got for today. And, you know, I didn't get to half the question, so I I hope you'll come back. Before we uh, say goodbye, I do want to take a a brief opportunity to thank you for your service to our country. Thank you, Mr. Bai. Rebecca, it's been my privilege. Thank you. 
If your station is leaving us after this hour and uh, you have a question or a comment to make about today's program, you can email me at RebeccaCosta.com or send me a note on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn. We're all over the Internet, so drop me a line and let me know what you thought about our conversation with Evan Bai. And if you missed the full interview with Bai or any of our other guests, you can download previous episodes of the Costa Report from our website, Apple iTunes, Podbean, and also our new YouTube channel, which I hope you'll take a moment to visit. I also want to thank loyal listeners who have ordered copies of The Watchman's Rattle from our website and for your many kind emails. I really enjoy, after the program, I always have a chance to sit down with the producers and read your emails, and and it's a great pleasure to hear from you. Um, The Watchman's Rattle is the only book which spells out the three signs to watch for prior to collapse. And for those of you who haven't ordered the book, I'm going to go ahead and tell you what the first one is. It's Gridlock. Leaders have the knowledge and the means to stop dangerous threats, but they become unable to act to avert calamity. And if that sounds a lot like what you heard about today and what you think is happening today, then you'll want to go get the book and find out what that second sign is. So go to RebeccaCosta.com right now. That's my name.com and put your order in. Do it now while it's fresh in your mind. You'll be glad you did. My guest next week is former Senator and Secretary of Labor and Transportation, the one and only Elizabeth Dole. She'll be here to talk about the real price of U.S. military intervention abroad, uh, which we touched upon briefly today, and we're going to really get in depth with that. Uh, You know, as many members of our armed forces return home, they're in need of long-term care. And with so much of our media focus on the Affordable Health Care Act, We don't want to forget about how this nation is going to care for those brave souls who protect our liberty and way of life. So I hope that you'll take a moment to mark your calendars and tune in and hear what Elizabeth Dole has to say, because she's got a she has been an advocate for veterans benefits for uh, longer than I can remember. And she's got a lot to say about how we're treating our nation's veterans and what we need to really step up as a nation and do them right and do them proud. So uh, don't miss Elizabeth Dole next week right here on the Costa Report, the only news program that puts policy ahead of politics. One more final announcement I'd like to make is that uh, I really and truly enjoyed speaking at the New York State University uh, conference, the SUNY conference here in New York. I'm broadcasting from uh, the New York facilities of uh, of the Radio Foundation, and uh, I have to say they've done a wonderful job of uh, helping us deliver this program live to you. I thank the people at SUNY for their wonderful hospitality and also the Radio Foundation for accommodating this broadcast. Now stay tuned for another hour of Straight Talk Radio following these important messages. You're listening to The Costa Report. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.